Welcome! Hi! I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Kia ora, everyone. Welcome to the podcast this week. I am Mickey. You are listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I'm speaking to Professor Mike Murphy who works in mitochondrial redox biology and is a co-creator of MitoQ, a CoQ10 supplement that is specifically designed to target mitochondria and offset free radical damage created through oxidative stress and improve health-related outcomes. Now, despite the science-based nature of the topic, Mike is so good at distilling down information that we can all understand and we discuss mitochondria, the research behind coenzyme Q10, what makes MitoQ different from other coenzyme Q10 supplements and also how this links to our health and well-being and some tactics to help improve overall cellular health. Here's a wealth of information and I so appreciated sitting down with Mike. Mike, his background, he studied chemistry and obtained a PhD in biochemistry from Peterhouse University of Cambridge in the late 80s and subsequently moved on to different academic roles and even spent some time at the University of Otago in New Zealand from 1992 to 2001 to set up his own research group, moving up to the level of associate professor there. Of course, now he is a professor over at Cambridge. He has been appointed an honorary fellow of the Royal Society of New Zealand in 2012, awarded a bunch of different awards, which is amazing. And he, as I said, is a co-creator of MitoQ. Many of you, I think, will be familiar with that. And we will include links to how to find Mike and MitoQ over in the show notes. Before we get to the interview, though, I'd just like to remind you that if you enjoy these episodes, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, share them with a mate, and get the word out there about Wikipedia. That would be amazing. In addition to that, if you want to help support us a little bit further, jump over to my website, mickeywillardin.com, and sign up to that recipe portal access. With 12 bucks a month, you get a regularly updated recipe library, access to the members-only Facebook page, access to me to answer your nutrition-related questions within our online platform that is brought to us from Training Tilt, and just, you know, an opportunity to eat some delicious food and connect with the rest of us over at Mickey Willardin Nutrition. Anyway, sit back, relax, or whatever it is you do when you listen to podcasts, and enjoy this conversation I have with Mike Murphy. Lovely. Professor Murphy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me uh, this morning, your evening. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, as I understand it, you are one of the sort of foremost experts, if you like, in coenzyme Q10, mitochondria, how they interact, and of course, um, your involvement with MitoQ, which is something which I take on a daily basis. So um, it's awesome that I get the opportunity to talk to you. Can you give us um, a little bit of your background and 
what led you to sort of studying MitoQ, um, or I'm sorry, mitochondria CoQ10? So what is your background? So my background was in Ireland as a, I did chemistry as an undergraduate. Then I went to, in Trinity College Dublin, then I went to Cambridge University and I did a PhD in biochemistry. And there I started working on mitochondria. And mm -hmm. so there we were interested because I could explain a little bit about what mitochondria are and then we can see how that how that fits in with my life story, such as it is. So inside all our cells, we have these small compartments called mitochondria. Mm. And most of our cells would have hundreds or maybe up to a thousand of these little guys. And they're descended from bacteria that used to be free living, but have taken up life inside our cells because uh, it's more protected. But in exchange, what they do for us is they break down the food that we eat, like sugar, amino acids from protein and the fat. And they make energy available in the form the cell can use. And in doing so, they consume most of the oxygen that we breathe, maybe about 95% of the oxygen that we breathe. Mm. And when I was doing my PhD, we used to be able to isolate the mitochondria, typically from rat liver or something like that. And then we could try and understand how the isolated mitochondria worked. So we could infer how they actually transferred the energy from food onto a usable form, it's called ATP, but that's not so important. Main thing is it's a form of energy the cells could use. Mm. And that's what I was trying to understand at that stage. And then after that, I went around a few different places uh, and worked on different aspects of mitochondria for the rest of my career. Mm. And I ended up in the University of Otago in Dunedin mm. in about 92. And there we were interested in all sorts of ways of could we measure what's happening in mitochondria? Could we understand or could we manipulate what was going on there? And there I started working with Professor Rob Smith, who was in the chemistry department. And Rob was very good at making molecules of various sorts. And we tried to make molecules that were designed to go into mitochondria very quickly because mitochondria have a negative charge inside them. Mm. And so by making positively charged molecules that had the ability to go straight through biological membranes, mm -hmm. we're able to suck these things into mitochondria. And so when I was there as a as a normal academic doing teaching, the research was focused on trying to target these molecules to mitochondria. And we used those to both protect mitochondria and also to measure what was happening in mitochondria. And so one of the molecules we made was MitoQ, which was a targeted antioxidant, which was more effective, we felt, at protecting against damage than the CoQ10 that was available at the time. Mm. And what is it about CoQ10 that makes it important for mitochondria? So um, what is CoQ10 and, and what's its role or its job? So the mitochondria, uh, if you think about what, well, this, I have to go back a little bit and explain what mitochondria are like. Mm. If we think about the food that we break down, what we're doing is we're trying to burn that food by reacting it with oxygen, but in a controlled way. Mm -hmm. And to do that, like if you burn sugar in a fire, the, the electrons are coming from the sugar onto oxygen to make water, and that's releasing heat very rapidly. Mm. Mitochondria are doing the same, but they're doing it in a very controlled way. And so the electrons are going down at like inside a wire inside the mitochondria, inside the membrane of the mitochondria. And the electrons have to pass from very reactive state down and we can pull down to react with oxygen. And then we break off bits of energy at each point, or actually three, three or four steps, depending on the direction. Mm. And we save that energy, and then we use that to make a more usable form of energy for the cell called ATP. Mm. 
as the electrons come down, they pass through several different jumps inside proteins that are part of the machinery of the mitochondria. That's called the respiratory chain because it consumes mostly oxygen that we respire or breathe. Mm. Um, and those are great big lumps of protein bouncing around like icebergs in the mitochondrial inner membrane. But in addition, you've got to link up some of these proteins and have the electrons go from one protein to the other. And one of the most important of those is called CoQ10 or coenzyme Q10 mm. or ubiquinone. And what that can do is it acts as a smallish molecule that picks up electrons from some proteins and then takes on the electrons and forms a form that is uh, what's called reduced in the technical term. So it goes from a quinone to a quinol. Mm. And that's also important, just it's now in a stage where it's actually carrying the electrons. And then it goes down the chain and dumps the electrons on the next part of the chain. Mm. and comes back for more. So it's a small mobile electron carrier is its key role within mitochondria. Mm. So if you don't have any ubiquinone, coenzyme Q10, lots of names, I'm sorry about that, um, then what happens is that your mitochondria won't work. And so because we make this ourselves inside our bodies, it's not a vitamin. A vitamin is something that you take in in, in your diet. Mm. The CoQ10 is actually made within our mitochondria. Mm. Some unlucky people have defects in the synthesis, and they um, are, are very sick very early and usually don't survive beyond um, in utero. Mm. In, uh, they don't get born. A few milder milder defects can be rescued by supplements, but uh, it's a quite a rare disease. So that's the key role. And without that, you can't actually burn food with oxygen and yeah. make the energy available in a form that can be used. Okay. With CoQ10, is it do the levels change across our lifetime, Mike? We don't. It, they seem to go down a little bit as we get older, mm. um, but it's not very clear if that's because the let because the amounts of mitochondria go down, or and also it's quite difficult to do the do a biopsy mm. from your brain, for example. Um, so it's not clear how well the, the amounts inside our tissues change with age. It's probable that they go down, but whether that's just a, a sign that we have fewer cells and fewer mitochondria as we get older, mm. it's quite hard to say. Yeah. Bear in mind that you know, to, just to know what's going on inside your muscle, your brain, your heart as you get older, lots of things are changing. And yeah. some, of the, some of these changes in levels of mitochondria are a secondary consequence of, say, loss of cells, fibrosis, fat deposits, things like that, yeah. or not being used. But it's important to remember that the actual molecule itself, the coenzyme Q10 molecule, is quite unusual because mm. it's got kind of like a, an active head group, which is a small active bit that can take and release electrons. Mm. This is connected to a huge tail containing about, in humans, about 50 carbon atoms. Mm. What this does is make it extremely oily. And so it means it's essentially insoluble in water. So inside our bodies, it just lives inside the membrane. It's made inside the membrane. So the amount that's transported around our bodies is not is quite small, and not and its role is not really very well understood. Okay. Uh, so while it's a vital plays a vital role inside these membranes as an electron carrier, mm. it's quite hard to get it delivered there because it's so sticky, it's so oily. So you you could you wouldn't be able to get any of it to dissolve in water, for example, but it gives its 
within the membrane, within these lipid or fatty parts of the mitochondria. It has another very important role as an antioxidant. Mm. So when it takes electrons, well, that's its main role, cycling electrons down the respiratory chain onto oxygen. One of the electron-carrying forms can now actually react with what are called free radicals. And these are parts of, these are produced as a byproduct of mitochondrial function. And these things like superoxide, hydrogen, which goes on to other things like hydrogen peroxide and other reactive species, they can, if not controlled, cause damage. And mitochondria, as well as producing these free radicals, they're also quite susceptible to damage. This is because I talked a bit about the membranes. Yeah. And the membrane is a key part of the mitochondria. It's very large. But just as you know, and it's made out of these fatty molecules. But as you know, if you look at fatty things like butter, it could go rancid. In other words, yeah. the unsaturated fatty acids, the ones with which have lots of double bonds, the ones which are probably good for you, mm-hmm. um, are also quite susceptible to oxidation. Mm. And they break down and cause further damage. And this can disrupt mitochondria and cause other damaging species to be released. So that happens quite a lot in mitochondria. Mm. But the the ubiquinone, the coenzyme Q10, that inside the membrane, one of its jobs is to block some of this damage. So it protects the membrane from being damaged by this background production of free radicals. So I, I spoke to a cardiologist actually maybe a year ago and, and we chatted about exercise in the heart and, and like on a, on, a, on a removed topic. And then when I asked him what supplements that he would sort of recommend people take in order to help protect their heart, one thing he was adamant on was coenzyme Q10. Is CoQ10 particularly important in certain tissues, Mike, or is it just sort of across the board it's important? Like what's, what's that relationship there with CoQ10 and sort of heart tissue? Well, probably it's it's important in all tissues, mm. particularly those which have a high energy demand, because much of the CoQ is coming in to help the mitochondria work. Mm. And certainly there's a lot of evidence that, or suggestive suggestions that it um, should be important with aging, but there aren't many very strong studies as I'm aware of showing it being protective. It's been tried in many different studies and preliminary studies of things like Parkinson's, Mm. Um, and also you'd expect it to be in theory um, good to be protective, but it's quite hard to show for sure how much that you take in gets to the tissue. There's some evidence that as we get older, if the cochlear levels do get depleted, then some more might be taken up to make up for the shortfall. Mm. Um, but it's quite hard to do that very accurately mm. in humans. And, and some people dispute how well it would get taken up because as I was saying, it's extremely oily. Yeah. And so uh, if you take it in your diet, only a small amount will get absorbed and then it won't go through your blood in the normal situation. It has to be packaged up uh, and then that will go around your body and some may get taken up into mitochondria, yeah. but it's not clear because that's not what it's designed to do because it's just, it's made within the mitochondria inside our cells. Yeah. And so whether you can top that up yeah, it's not in, not entirely clear. Oh, interesting. If we go back to mitochondria, what are the things which harm or sort of uh, change our mitochondrial function over time, Mike? Um, probably a, 
just there's the same sort of things that change all our functions as we get older, um, in the sense that uh, we're being exposed to uh, a damaging environment, to the stresses in a vague sort of way, mm. the stress and strain of of living is always going to affect us. Um, so those things will obviously be damaging and affecting mitochondrial function as we get older. Mm. And then, of course, if the mitochondria aren't working particularly well, then that's going to lead on. And so some of the things that but we know a bit more now beyond that kind of very vague, hand-wavy sort of approach. And there are a few areas where we know that we think mitochondria, we know a bit more about how they might contribute to aging. So first off is the link with things like exercise and obesity. Mm -hmm. So we know that mitochondria, one of the benefits of exercise is it keeps your mitochondria going, turning over and making energy available. Mm -hmm. And that's when, and when mitochondria are actually working well, working reasonably hard, so when you're exercising, they're producing fewer damaging free radicals. So it's a bit counterintuitive. Mm. But the harder your mitochondria are working, under most circumstances, they're producing fewer damaging free radicals under those situations. So we, we probably, though these are still very early days, we don't fully understand it, it's more likely that exercise that's keeping your mitochondria in a fairly active state mm -hmm. uh, prevents some of this damage, but um, but it certainly will prevent some of those damaging molecules. Mm. And that may contribute to the health benefits of exercise. Mm -hmm. Although some people would um, argue against that a wee bit. Yeah. The other thing, of course, would be obesity, mm -hmm. where you're oversupplying your mitochondria with fat, carbohydrates, um, and whether the mitochondria can cope with that or whether that also causes them to become damaged mm -hmm. seems likely. And another general area which is very important is inflammation. Yeah. It's very clear that um, that obesity, lack of exercise, can lead to inflammation. And mitochondria seem to be quite essential both to how normal tissues uh, respond to inflammation or become what's called pro-inflammatory, mm. but also things like the T cells that mediate many of our inflammatory responses, the mitochondrial function within those cells also seems to be very important. Mm. And also the mitochondrial metabolites, uh, the small um, molecules that food gets broken down to and used and processed within mitochondria, those also seem to be quite important as signaling molecules coming and going from mitochondria. And we've known for a long time that mitochondria are very important for cell death. So we know that when cells have a programmed form of cell death, mitochondria is central to making those decisions. So often mm. the mitochondria are sensing how damaged or infected by a virus or something that the cell might be. And then that would go on to induce what's a programmed cell death where the cell decides to kill itself, yeah. clean, to sort of remove the damage or prevent it going on to spread infection or become cancerous, for example. So mitochondria that functions properly is responsible for in part um contributes to that decision making of the cell death so if you have mitochondria that isn't functioning as well does that mean that that sort of programmed cell death doesn't happen as easily it can um yes it, that can occur and mm. in some situations some of the protein machinery that was causing cell death was discovered in certain tumors because normally if a cell becomes cancerous there are a whole bunch of switches that should tell the cell to 
to kill itself mm. so it doesn't go on to form a tumour. And some of those are associated with mitochondria. And if there are mutations or problems with those, then that can lead on to certain types of cancer. Mm. Uh, as a very specific example, but in many other situations, um, in response to infection or stress or damage, then you'll get similar types of things occurring with the mitochondria. Mm. Mike, like obviously over the last couple of years, we've been dealing with um, the pandemic and infection from the SARS-CoV virus. Have you either in the past on, on similar viruses or currently, are you exploring any um, relationship with mitochondrial function and uh, the infection itself or uh, long COVID or, or anything like that? We don't know. Um, we haven't. My, my my lab doesn't do a lot, but there's been a lot of interest in trying to treat viral infections with things like MitoQ. Yeah. Uh, both HIV, um, the COVID, the virus, um, COVID, and in addition, many other types of infl- inflammatory processes caused by viruses. This is because we seem to have signaling pathways that go through mitochondria that maybe we can damp down a little bit by interfering with mitochondria. But it's very early days. We don't really understand the mechanisms. But certainly what's clear is that a lot of viral infections, um, the signaling response goes through aspects of mitochondria. Mm. And so it could be that the cell can respond. It uses aspects of the mitochondria, a bit like the machinery for cell death. And then the cell can upregulate various ways to try and decrease the viral infection. Mm. Um, Bring on the idea about... Uh, long COVID, which is quite mysterious. Mm. Uh, but, but again, I'm no expert, and it's, these areas can become very contentious because it links into many other related areas where you have these um, post-viral uh, inflammatory states, um, such as ME and things like that, uh, which are very poorly understood um, and seem to have some similarities in terms of the fatigue um, mm whether these are associated with post-viral thing affecting mitochondrial function or an inflammatory state that's sustained following the viral infection is quite probable, but I'm, I'm no expert on this. And yeah. so I would just be speculating. And um, there's already a lot of speculation out there, so I don't want to add yeah. to it. But I think it's, a, it's an area worth investigating. But And these links between long COVID and ME and all these sort of things mm. that are very real but yeah. pretty mysterious in the sense we don't have a clear idea how these arise or how to treat them. Yeah, for sure. And it, you mentioned ME and, and my head immediately goes to MS, an entirely different uh, mm. condition, but I um, am familiar with Terry Walls and her work, um, or at least her illness, multiple sclerosis. Do you know who I'm speaking of? Um, mm. The Walls Protocol. Oh, okay, she she wrote a book called Mind Minding My Mitochondria. I think was maybe the, the her first book, and um, she essentially used diet um, and and a range of supplements to help reverse many of the changes that she initially had with MS to to sort of just um, yeah like a massive like a step sort of change improvement in her health status. Mm-hmm. Um, and she focused on the sort of nutrients that are involved in mitochondrial health is, is how she described it to help sort of enhance her her health, which was 
amazing actually and she's now running randomized clinical trials looking at her protocol with people who um, have a similar sort of uh, conditions not necessarily MS but other neurological um, conditions Uh, fascinating the MS because there's again I'm no expert on these I'm afraid Mm. there's been historically often thought to be a link with mitochondria and MS but it's it hasn't been well established Mm. Uh, certainly there's been ideas because the inflammation that attacks the axons, it, it comes and goes in waves. Uh, and what triggers those waves, so you might have the susceptibility, and what triggers the waves is something that could be damped down in various, by controlling the environmental factors. Mm. Um, and so it's whatever works in those situations. But there certainly seems to be an inflammatory, obviously an inflammatory component. And these these may actually be related in some ways to the post-viral syndromes that could be triggered by a virus as one of the, the, th- the, the, the Epstein-Barr virus may be involved in initiating the inflammatory response, and then that goes on to, st- to be over-triggered and it and starts attacking the axons in the um, nerves. Is there, um, is there much research, Mike, looking just at uh, coenzyme Q10, obviously MITRE-Q particularly, and uh, in relation to um, just viruses in general, you mentioned HIV. So, is that something which you've been looking at with with MITRE-Q particularly? We have we haven't been looking looking at this, but I know some labs have been looking at this. Again, just trying to see if you with with the MITRE-Q, which is kind of a souped up version of coenzyme Q. So it mm. goes into mitochondria, and it doesn't require and it's water soluble. So it goes into mitochondria and accumulates. And then you can enhance the antioxidant protection. So you can, without it being, you can get it in very easily into tissues, far more so than CoQ10. So we think, but it can only adapt to the antioxidant aspects of CoQ10. It can't replicate the electron transfer within the mitochondrial respiratory chain. Yes. Um, so it's just as an antioxidant that it's acting, the mitochondria. When it's tried out, um, it does seem to have effects in cell culture mm. and some aspects of these viral replication, but whether that will translate into in vivo, of course, is very hard to say. So that would require yeah. detailed clinical trials. Yeah, for sure. And now what is it about MITRE-Q that is sort of different from CoQ10? And you mentioned that it's water-soluble, which obviously, is, so it's been formulated in a way that it's much more easily absorbed. I guess maybe my question is more, when I look at the amounts of CoQ10 in my MITRE-Q, they're at sort of five milligrams, 10 milligrams. Whereas mm-hmm. if I look at other coenzyme Q10 supplements, they're upwards of sort of 20, 200, 500 milligrams. Mm-hmm. Is that just because the other supplements aren't as readily absorbed? So the amount in them is has to be more? Yes, that's the, the prime. If you remember... I sort of described CoQ10 as kind of a a very small molecule, Mm. uh, which is the active bit. And then it's got this huge chain, this oily chain of about 50 carbon atoms. That makes it essentially insoluble. Uh, And so when you take some into, when when you take it in orally, the amount that would be absorbed and transported and packaged by the liver and what have you to be transported is going to be a tiny fraction of that. There are various more water-soluble or emulsified versions that people claim get in, get taken up better or by changing from ubiquinone to ubiquinone may get up better. But again, it's a, it's a fairly marginal increase, I think, although there may be sufficient to 
enhance the activity and the uptake. Mm. Um, Myelic is quite different because we've been taking the same active group, which is the, the quinone group, and then we have a very short chain attached to that, just long enough so it can still have uh, access to the active sites of the enzymes that reduce it and activate it within mitochondria. And then to this, the other end, we attach a positive charge cation, which is a positive charge in a form that has a weird combination of the positive charge and the ability to, to be a bit oily so it can go through membranes. Mm. And then it accumulates maybe a thousandfold because of this voltage with a negative charge inside mitochondria. And then, so what we're able to do is we can get a far greater accumulation of it within the tissues. And then in the tissues, it's all inside the mitochondria. So if you take in MitoQ, it will be cleared from the blood into the cells and from the cells into the mitochondria mm. quite quickly. So that's the reason that you only need a, quite a small amount. And then you're, you would be enhancing the antioxidant defenses in the mitochondria. Um, with a thousandfold less of MitoQ compared to CoQ10. Yeah, um, yeah. Even if it was getting in through the gut. So, mm. so that's the rationale behind that. Yeah. Okay. Now that's super interesting. And you know, you mentioned that it's like an, a small sort of oily substance, and and obviously we get some CoQ10 through food. Um, what are those food choices or sources where we would just be able to get it from our diet? And would that in your opinion, be enough for some of those more protective sort of mechanisms that you're describing for the average person? Um, I think most of the CoQ you'd expect to have in anything that contains large amounts. So meat would be the obvious mm -hmm. one. Anything that contains lots of mitochondria, which is meat, fish, something like that. Um, but th then the amount that would be absorbed from the diet versus from a supplement isn't going to be markedly different. Mm. So you still have that problem of, of being of absorbed. Um, compare this with a similar molecule, say vitamin E, mm. which is also an antioxidant, and it's got quite a high, quite a oily chain, not as long as coenzyme Q, but it's quite oily. But the big thing here is that coenzyme Q10 is not a vitamin. So mm. you remember a vitamin is something that we don't make in our bodies, but we have to take yes. in orally. And so this means that we have to take in vitamin E yeah. in our diet. But what that means then is that we have a whole bunch of uh, receptors and transport proteins that will take it up and transport it selectively mm. to our cells around the body, whereas we don't have that as far as we know for CoQ10. So my understanding is that we're not really designed to take in CoQ10 in our diet. And so the amount that would come in from our diet is... Um, it's not essential. So yeah. you could deprive, you could remove all CoQ10 from your diet yeah. and you would still survive because you're making it within your own mitochondria. Yeah. And is it when the mitochondria become dysfunctional that, that the, the action of coenzyme Q10 changes or does coenzyme Q10 deplete um, from some of those stresses that you were sort of describing earlier with what impact on mitochondria? Like, have we, do we know those sort of relationships? We don't know them very well because mm. it's a bit like just the CoQ10 is one important part of mitochondrial function. And so if your mitochondria, and it's also protective. So if it's there, it will protect against some of the damage. 
So if it goes down, then the damage will enhance, but also that will tend to deplete the CoQ10 levels. The precise relationship is not clear. But bear in mind, if your mitochondria are getting damaged um, and depleted, then that will drag down your CoQ10 levels simply because you're you're damaging and losing the mitochondria from, mm. from your body. Also, just important to bear in mind that um, what happens to mitochondria as they get damaged is a very important aspect of many diseases, particularly perhaps neurodegeneration, things like Parkinson's, because we know that mitochondria are continually recycled and repaired and mm-hmm. degraded if they're not working well. And so there's a continual cycle of mitochondrial being uh, separated, bits broken off, digested, repaired, and remade all the time. And so it's hard to think of you know, just one thing going wrong. Yeah. But those processes go wrong, then poorly degraded or accumulation of partially damaged mitochondria seems to accumulate, particularly in things like Parkinson's disease, yeah. where many mutations in these machineries will lead to certain fam- familial forms of Parkinson's, as they're called. In other words, genetic forms of Parkinson's disease, because we're not able to um, repair or turn over the damaged mitochondria, and they sort of hang around, get in the way, and clog up the cells. In, mm. in, well, that's the current view, put more simply. But uh, the, what's really happening so is not, not entirely clear. Yeah, and so... Uh... Mitocute is being studied in those sort of models now to see if that can impact or enhance, um, say, yeah, some yeah. of the mitochondria? Yeah, so it's been looked at in a, in a range of different disorders uh, to see if it can protect against the mitochondria. Uh, there was a trial in Parkinson's a long time ago when Mitocute was first made, um, but probably, and it wasn't effective in that trial, which was done in New Zealand, done a very good trial yeah. run from Auckland. Um, Part of the problem, of course, with all these degenerative diseases is that you, you, by the time you're getting the symptoms, so much damage has already been done Yes, that you can't repair or prevent damage if you've already lost a big chunk of those cells. So that's a kind of a, a conundrum with all anti-aging or mm. anti-neurodegeneration medicines that by the time you're getting the symptoms, it may be just too late to treat it. And... Of course, that, what that means is, is that you may be having to treat yourself for it from the time you're 20 or something like that. Uh, and it's very hard to, to run a clinical trial on those, those grounds. Ideally, we'd have a, a clear predictive way of seeing the very early onset of these diseases and then be able to intervene. But as you can imagine, that's very, very challenging. We just don't understand those things as, as yet. So looking for all kinds of biomarkers, but that has been very, very difficult. We don't have that as yet. Absolutely. And you mentioned the sort of genetic component of Parkinson's, for example. So I wonder if it's a matter of looking at your parents and their parents and sort of Mm -hmm. understanding their sort of how their disease might have progressed there and maybe maybe looking at a genetic profile. I don't know if there are any genes that we can sort of look at that, that can mm. tell us a little bit about risk and treating on that there are, basis. There are, um, but I, I should have, well, first off, it's always important to choose your parents very wisely. <laughs> um, but just want to emphasize with, with these forms of Parkinson's, the ones I call familial forms, mm. these are often caused by just mutations in a, a single gene. So it's a big effect from a single gene, very rare. And these will be inherited like many of the classic 
genetic diseases. And what these do is they tell us a lot about, because they produce the same symptoms, they tell us about what might be going wrong in normal Parkinson's, which mm. is the vast majority of the cases. And in those situations, uh, it's unlikely that just one or two genes, so it's like these mutations are mimicking what happens in the normal situation. But what would happen over your lifetime uh, to lead to this is probably caused by the interactions of thousands of different genes and your environment in ways that it's quite hard to predict. Mm. So while people are looking at very complicated ways of looking at your genetic distribution and uh, your bioinformatic analyses of oh, all of your different genes, because now we can sequence a whole gene, genome fairly rapidly and cheaply. We're trying to see are there any correlations. But it's very difficult because they're going to be very small effects and combinations of hundreds of thousands of different genes. Mm. And so quite hard to know. We may Something should turn out from that in due course, but it's very challenging. Yeah. And whether that would then lead on to uh, an intervention that you could take from early age and see what happened. That would be interesting. It feels like a lot of these things that we're speculating on is actually the sort of, you almost have to take a chance that you're going to be helped. It's almost preventative. You're like, well, I'm not sure whether or not this is going to be helpful for me, but I'd rather, you know, I've got the resources I can invest. I'd rather take that opportunity rather than wait to for that clinical trial. And that's, I suppose, the thing with science is like not everything can be tested in a randomised clinical trial, despite the fact that that's sort of gold standard? Yeah, obviously, um, that's a a very good point, particularly as I was saying earlier about ageing type Mm. interventions. Um, So often, but at the same time, this does open you up to a lot of um, uh, rubbish and snake oil treatments. Yes. So the best you can do is be very sceptical and also try and see even though it might be quite hard to do a trial to say um, to prevent cognitive impairments in your 80s, uh, where you start taking something from your 30s, and that to do that trial obviously is not practical. Mm. But if you want to judge, well, what might help me at that stage? What should I take now to? Then you have to be very skeptical and recognize it's a big risk and it may not work and it might mm. actually make it worse. All you can do is look at the evidence and the clinical trials that are done so far with the various interventions and at least show they're not damaging. And Mm. they are interacting in a plausible fashion with the pathways that seem to be associated with ageing. So we would push things like um, targeted antioxidants like MitoQ. Many people are exploring CoQ supplements also, and nicotinamides are also things that people are using quite a lot now. Mm. derivatives um all of these things are likely to be good but uh dietary restriction or um intermittent fasting exercise all those things are also very important and remember a lot of those things are having an effect on your mitochondria by enhancing this mitochondrial clearance and mitochondrial damage prevention so many of these interventions that we do believe improve health as you get older are also associated with mitochondria in very clear ways through metabolism. So those are all other possibilities. 
Um, Mike, cold thermogenesis um, is something which um, I've been familiar with for a number of years and and I do um, enjoy sort of cold plunging in winter and then doing as cold a shower as you can have in Auckland. I actually came from, I, I grew up in Dunedin, so I know it's probably easier to have a cold shower in Dunedin. Um, it's always hard to have a warm shower in a cold shower. That's <laughs> it's true. My memory. It is. Um, with respect to mitochondria, um, is that an important strategy that we can use to help protect our mitochondria, enhance them? So so what, mm-hmm. what's your understanding of cold thermogenesis? I think it's probably, there's certainly a strong connection to mitochondria. With all of these um, stress effects that have a beneficial outcome, there are multiple effects of the stress of cold immersion uh, that are not well understood, um, both on the brain, mood, all those things. Uh, on whether the effects are purely due to the mitochondrial effects. There's probably far more going on to that to do with effects on the, the various um, neurological systems mm. that I'm not competent to comment on. But for mitochondria themselves, mitochondria are a very key part of responding to the cold because we also produce stuff called brown adipose tissue. How much there is in, in an adult human is probably not great, but certainly this can switch on and is activated by cold exposure. Mm-hmm. And that can seems to be of benefit in various ways. It's very important for small, for babies, for small mammals that have a very high surface area, so lose a lot of heat. Less so for us because we're well insulated and we're not losing heat so much. But even so, that's probably something that is activated. Uh, and the significance is debated. Some people saying it's key, some people saying it's it's vestigial by the time you get to be an adult. Mm. Also, shivering, of course. Mm. The other aspect of of thermogenesis is shivering. Um, And that's just a way of bypassing your mitochondria. So you're just breaking down the energy and it's going to a a vicious cycle to release it. So instead of doing work like moving your muscles, you're using the energy just to make heat. And so your mitochondria can be going faster to supply that as well. And also, this mitochondrial function is key for your basal metabolic rate, mm. just your basal level of thermogenesis as you're resting and how that's affected by cold exposures. An interesting area that I don't think has been explored mm. very well. But the physiological effects of cold exposure, I think, are very clear. Um, uh, the mechanisms, I think it's plausible that mitochondria are involved. Mm. I'm afraid the answer is always more research is required, but it's certainly that cold exposure will have a direct effect on mitochondria, whether that's to what extent that explains the benefits of cold exposure, whether it's a tiny aspect of it yeah. or a major aspect, I don't think we know. Okay. Yeah, it's super interesting. And, you know, if nothing else, um, but there is more because you've just described, but you did mention that neurological sort of aspect and just how you feel when you have a good cold shower, you know, like yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. feel pretty amazing. <laughs> Yeah, afterwards, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, I understand that there is um, research looking at uh, CoQ enzyme 10 and heart failure uh, and helping, I suppose, rescue the heart muscle. I'm not sure if I've said that correctly. Um, mm. is, is that the case? Is there, um, as far as the evidence goes, quite a good knowledge base there and, and how it might be helpful? Or, or have I actually got that wrong? No, no, there's, again, people are, there's a clinical trial where they tried to use, where they use CoQ10 
uh, in patients who have heart failure. So heart failure is like if you have a damaged heart or from an infection or from a, a heart attack, then what happens is your heart is not, this is a long-term condition mm. where your heart is not functioning so well. Um, and so this means that your heart is struggling to, to pump blood around the body. There are many ways that this is treated, uh, but they're mainly treating the symptoms. They're not treating the underlying damage to the heart. Mm. So CoQ10 maybe showed some promising effects in a small trial a few years ago. And so there's a lot of interest in expanding that. We're also hoping to just try, some groups in London are very keen to try MITRE-Q, yeah. the same rationale. Uh, in uh, heart failure patients, just to see, can we decrease the the damage and give them a better chance of better heart function? Mm. How this is occurring, it's not clear. It, one of the thoughts might be that the failing heart uh, is trying to keep up, and it's the mitochondria not functioning well, and they're getting damaged, and this might protect them. Is one possibility. Mm-hmm. It could be also that there are inflammatory aspects to this, but the um, the protective, often a drug or an intervention will have a protective effect or will have a good clinical outcome. And we can speculate on the precise mechanism, but mm. often it's quite hard to know for sure mm. how it's happened. Like many drugs, we don't really know how they work. Metformin, for example, yeah. we're not clear how that works yet. So, so yeah, these look promising for, for trying to ameliorate heart failure when people, you know, and their, their hearts are struggling to keep up and um, yeah. it would eventually just be a downward spiral. So, Yeah. How long would a trial like that be set up for, Mike, if it was to sort of take hold and be of benefit? How how long might someone, you know, need to do it for? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say mm. um, because it's difficult. And I'll explain why it's difficult is because what you need to do is to, the technical term is power the study. Mm. So you've got to understand how big an effect there is. So say you, you, your drug might improve the outcome by 10%. Okay. Um, and then you've got to understand the variation in the population. Okay. Um, and how many get better on their own, get worse on their own. And then that, that would tell you statistically how many patients you need to study for how long to, before you could be, you have a, so if the effect was there, would you see it? Mm. And it could be this is we have to have, a thousand patients for um, a year, for example. Okay. Um, so recruiting those in multiple sites, and also just making sure you have the right dose of the drug. Mm. It sounds trivial, but these things are very hard to do in humans because in an animal you can you can do multiple doses and you can see is it getting to the heart, wherever. Very hard to do in the humans, to, and these trials are so expensive. So I'm afraid it could take it would take several years at least. Um, okay. Yeah. So I mean, vague, but uh, and the the biggest, uh, the the slowest, most frustrating bit is usually raising the money to do the trial. So. Oh, I yes, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that coenzyme Q10 is, um, uh, or mitochondria is sort of well everywhere, and CoQ enzyme Q10 is and you know very sort of energy dependent tissue. Have there mm-hmm. been Research studies looking at CoQ10 or MitoQ in particular for uh, conditions such as um, metabolic fatty liver disease or those, yeah, yeah that because that, that's such a problem now, sort of in terms of public health. It feels, you know, it's yeah. sort of mm-hmm. up there. Yeah, we know in animal models 
that MITOCU was quite protective against fatty liver. Mm. There's two types of fatty liver. One is alcohol-dependent, one is non-alcohol-dependent. But um, non-alcohol-dependent fatty liver disease, where you have fat accumulation in your liver, uh, it's very prevalent, but of course most most people wouldn't be aware that they had it. But it's associated with obesity. Mm -hmm. The problem is it can lead on to cirrhosis of the liver and liver failure, Mm. which means that you're, you're... the only outcome then is uh, liver transplant or something like that. Mm. So we know that MITOQ is protective against that. And we did try to start a trial on that. The problem is that it's quite hard to, to get to assess how it's developing over time because most people are asymptomatic. Mm. And that makes it, there's no urgency for people yeah. to get the treatment because, uh, you know, it's a bit like many aspects of obesity. Um, it's very hard to get people to to treat these things. You can maybe treat blood pressure because mm-hmm. you can measure it and say this is not not a good thing to have high. With fatty liver, it's yeah, it's a bit more vague because people don't know they've got it. Yeah. So yes, is the answer. It's probably very good to treat it, but yeah. most people who have it probably aren't aware they have it. Yeah. Okay. No, that's really interesting. Um, and then just a couple of. Last thing, because I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I'm really interested to know what research says about MitoQ with regards to sport performance or exercise. Like, is are these studies to show that it helps, um, that it's an ergogenic aid? Um, and if so, like, what kind of doses are we thinking? Yeah. Um, folks in Auckland have done a little bit on this, um, and I think they've seen slightly better performance in endurance athletes, things on exercise bikes, and also that might be that sometimes when you're exercising to an extreme extent, you could be damaging the muscles, releasing, mm. and that that would set up an inflammatory response. And so some of the preliminary data would suggest that MITOQ could decrease some of that damage, which might mean that you might be able to exercise a bit more if you want to. Um, or you might be better at that stage, so rest <laughs> a bit, or that it might stop the, the post exercise damage but i think it's still very early days mm. um and one thing that you know for sure which i'm sure you're pretty aware of is that if there is any evidence whatsoever of anything having a slightly beneficial effect ever published then uh, athletes will be all over it oh we are yeah immediately immediately so um so this so as far as i know athletes aren't taking large amounts of motor cube yet mm. so that express is the is the answer um, already. I think people must be self doing experiments with themselves to see if they feel better or they recover better. Preliminary, mm. uh, the published evidence at least is suggestive that it should be a bit better. But obviously, it's the athletes themselves will uh, determine then. Oh yeah, um, it's, it wasn't really what we were looking for in terms of it would be great if it, if it was beneficial for that. Yeah, um, but uh, main thing is really for aging associated things can you, you know, can you still go for a jog when you're 60 or 70 rather than can you you know add another couple of seconds to your 1500 meter time or something yeah completely it's um so i've been taking mitoq for over a year now which is quite um like amazing because i don't take any supplements for an extended period of time but i've managed to get it into my sort of daily routine that mm-hmm. in currens actually which is another new zealand supplement which i love mm-hmm. um and I don't this I don't think I notice any difference, but because I'm so aware of the research around what it could potentially be doing under the hood, I'm 
really happy to take it and to help keep my sort of, you know, self-protected and, and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, well, as far as you know, it doesn't do any harm, and it's it's all the evidence has suggested that it's, and the animal studies are very strong that it's protecting, and the human study showing it lowers blood pressure, yeah, um, and lowers inflammation. So those are all good things we think. We Absolutely. So finally, Mike, um, you've spent a lifetime studying mitochondria, developing uh, products such as MitoQ or MitoQ. Um, what do you do to help? the health of your mitochondria. So, yeah, what are your sort of habits? Um, well, they should be better. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, focusing on mitochondria, I think I try and I, I actually do intermittent fasting. I don't mm. look like it. I try to just um, not eat during the day, yeah. just have coffee and water yeah. Yeah. during the day. And I, I try and do regular exercise and, mm. um, and open water swimming as well. So. Um, those sort Brilliant. of things. So, so th- those sort of, and sea swimming as well. Whenever I'm anywhere near the sea, yeah, nice. Uh, and just cycling, running, but nothing, nothing competitive. I'm not very competitive with sports, but just to keep myself fit. Um, yeah. so those would be the more things I would try and do. Yeah. But I think intermittent, intermittent fasting and cold exposure are probably associated with mitochondria. I think, and probably beneficial. Yeah. But everything is probably or maybe science. No, I love it. Yeah, for sure. definitive things, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. No, that's and that is science for you, right? Like you just you cannot yes. be definitive on it seems almost anything. Uh, not ultimately definitive, but you can. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can say some things are more likely, less likely. Mm, uh, mm. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, And um, it's really good to get that sort of understanding of how CoQ10 works, why MitoQ is a supplement that that is potentially, um, or that has been shown to be more effective at getting into the cell. I think that's something which is important to understand because there are so many different supplements out there saying that they do so many different things. But the fact that this one in particular is has had clinical trials to sort of assess and show that is um, gives people some confidence when they are spending money that they're actually spending it wisely. So I think that's really important. And I will link to um, some of those um, studies that we've discussed in the show notes and um, and then also link to your bio or uh, and where people might want to find you or MitoQ, obviously, um, yes. and the research around that um, as well. So um, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. Oh, pleasure. Lovely. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Right. Thank you. Great. Pleasure. All right, team, hope you enjoyed that. And I don't know if any of you have tried MitoQ at all. I'm a regular, so I take it regularly in the morning. I've sort of got it into my regime and I absolutely love it. Next week on the podcast, I had the pleasure of sitting down and chatting to Dom Harvey. Dom is a former radio host here in New Zealand and is now a podcaster of the Runners Only podcast. We have a great conversation and that's coming out next week. Until then though team, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin or jump on my website mickeywillardin.com where 
In addition to that recipe portal access, you can book a one-on-one consultation, sign up to one of my meal plans that relate to healthy eating, fat loss, keto longevity diet, and connect with me there. All right, team, have a great week. See you later.